Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 190th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most famous, accomplished, beautiful, and enigmatic women in the world. An Oscar, Golden Globe, and SAG award-winning actress who is also a writer, director, and producer, as well as a humanitarian of the First Order who, in 2013, became the youngest ever recipient of the Academy's rarely presented Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award. She's the co-writer with Luang Ung and the director of the Khmer language historical drama First They Killed My Father, this year's Cambodian entry into the race for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar, Angelina Jolie. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by a true Hollywood pioneer and legend, Marcia Nassiter, the first woman ever to reach the level of vice president at a Hollywood studio. Nassiter, who was born in Texas, started out as a secretary at a New York advertising agency in the 1960s and once told me, quote, I didn't have to watch Mad Men. I lived it, close quote. A bibliophile, she eventually transitioned to a top literary agency where she worked her way up to the job of literary agent and represented many writers who also were in-demand screenwriters, including William Goldman, Robert Towne, and Lorenzo Semple Jr., By 1974, Nassiter's taste in material was well known enough to land her an invitation to work for United Artists in Hollywood, but she refused to accept it unless she was given the title of vice president, something that was unheard of at the time for a woman in Hollywood or most of the rest of America. She got it. Over the ensuing years, she helped to develop One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky, Carrie, and Coming Home. For Coming Home, Jane Fonda thanked her by name from the stage of the Oscars when she accepted the Best Actress Prize in 1979. After Nassiter's UA tenure, she worked as an independent producer on films like The Big Chill, Hamburger Hill, and Ironweed. Now, at 91, she is as active and creative as ever. She is the subject of a charming new documentary called A Classy Broad, directed by Francis Ford Coppola's longtime film editor, Anne Gorso. And she also happens to be one of my most valued friends. Marcia Nassiter, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Scott so I can tell you what the business is really like. (laughs) Okay, so it seems to me, and I've been hearing this from others too, that there's probably less interest in and enthusiasm about this season's Oscar race than recent others. And I wonder, do you think, if you agree with that, that this is because of the caliber of the films that are in contention or the 24-7 coverage of the Weinstein Spring or the doom and gloom of the Trump era or something else? You had a choice of all three. (laughs) But no, I think, Scott, and this is terrible to say, but I think, of course, the only conversation that we're having in Hollywood everywhere is women trying to remember if they can or do remember their own experiences. And Harvey Weinstein opened the floodgates. I hate cliches, but... It has been extraordinary for me. I came in the early 70s, and I worked at an agency. I represented men, clients. also represented a wonderful husband and wife team, Irving Ravitch and his wife. And I was always treated swell. I mean, the men were very encouraging. And then I went to United Artists and was their first woman executive they had. And in fact, they referred to you as our woman VP, right? Yes. In fact, my favorite, <laughs> Arthur Krim, who was the chairman of the company and a brilliant, brilliant Columbia 
university graduate lawyer, etc., introduced me. They were very pleased about having a woman vice president, and he would introduce me live to another person and say, this is Marsha, is our woman vice president. <laughs> and it just used to make me nuts. I wanted to say, Arthur, can't they see, right? <laughs> but the problem for women in my time and my business was we made less money than the men. Mm-hmm. And one of my biggest, in fact, it's the only thing I talk about, is when I asked for more money at one of the companies, not at the ones I'm talking about, the response was, well, you know, a man has a family to support. And I was a divorced mother and brought up two sons, and it doesn't really make any difference. If you're doing the same job mm-hmm. as a man, you should be making the same money. Of course. But the women generally made less. Well, and this unfortunately continues to be a problem. <laughs> and it is still a problem. <laughs> right. Can I read something? I, this was in the paper this morning. And the young woman's name is Elizabeth Dan. Okay. And she wanted to be an actress. Let me read what she mm-hmm. said about her experience with Russell Simmons. Mm-hmm. I heard a word used recently about people like this. They're dream crushers. He took this thing that was such a beautiful thing, this young hope, this sense of promise, and he just ruined it. She left the theater and then went to work in some other world. And it really made me weep because to be at 22, 23, and you dream of being an actress or a model or a producer or a director and have someone treat you in such a demeaning way that unless you're really tough, Mm -hmm. which you got to learn to be, I guess, you run away from it. And that makes me very sad. Well, does it also anger you that, I mean, you and the women who followed you in the 70s and subsequently, you had to blaze a trail there. You had to fight for the opportunities that you got. And now a lot of people ask, why haven't women advanced further in this business and why aren't there more you know women directors or studio chiefs and now we kind of i guess are getting part of the answer which is that as a lot of them have moved up the food chain they've run into this kind of bullshit so just on a personal emotional level we haven't come all that far in these last 40 years or so since you reached that level there have been a women Heads of studios. I a mean, few. Amy Pascal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steele, Sherry Lansing. Sherry Lansing. But Sherry left the business. Mm-hmm. All I know is, and my sons say that I'm playing the age card, but I, I swear I never had any man do anything that was untoward. I mean, men flirted, right? And I flirted back. <laughs> Because, you know, we are boys and girls together in a business that lends itself to romance. I mean, we join, as this young woman said, Miss Dan, that we join the business because we're looking for dreams of having a glamorous life. And I guess we all think we're going to meet a Prince Charming, which is what I think brings men and women to the business that it's going to be a very beautiful life. You're going to work in a business not in your father's department store or your mother's housewife. You're going to be a glamorous person. 
and then to discover that it is not as glamorous as you hoped and that it could be evil, in fact, because I think the behavior of some of the men who have been called out is really evil. And the one thing I don't understand is who brought them up and why is it happening? You're saying, you know, what causes this in a person? I've been thinking about it, you know, when serial killers die, people like to examine their brains and find out, you know, do they have anything in common? And I'd be curious to know if there is a gene with, with these guys, or honestly, if it's more just a matter of you come into this business, which started out for many years being run exclusively by men until people like you came along. And we've all been aware of the phrase, the the casting couch. And, you know, from the beginning, this was a business where the gatekeepers were men. And I guess a culture gets established that is very hard to break, just as we're seeing in the larger culture about things like racism and other things that we thought were more dealt with than they actually have been. So what's your theory about why we are? Well, I'll tell you, there was a friend I spoke to today, and I told her I was going to come and talk to you a little bit. And she said, if a man made a pass at you, her view was, you took a shot and it didn't work. I love the phrase. How does she mean? He took it, he made a pass. He'd say, you know, look, maybe you want to go somewhere and whatever. And if you said no, that was the end of it, right? So she's saying it wasn't reported, but the difference is, I guess, some of these guys were 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 making passes, but some of them were aggressive. It wasn't just the guy putting his hand on your leg. But the thing is, I don't think it's all about sex. I think it's about power. Totally. Well, there's the great quote, everything is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Correct. But who said that? That was Oscar Wilde. So the 19th century, he, of course, had his life destroyed because of sex. He was a gay man, and he was outed, exposed, and accused of having, it was against the law in England, of having same-sex relationships, and he got arrested for homosexuality, and he went to prison. But you agree with his premise? Yes. I think a lot of it is power. And I think, and this is not you, Scott, or any of the men that I worked for or worked with and know. I think it's very frightening for men in this business especially, which is the hardest to get into, most difficult to succeed in, but the rewards are incredibly great. You're not only make money, but you're leading a glamorous life or life is they hated the idea of women coming into the business on a business level. They didn't mind actresses or costume designers, but I think they I've talked to my friends who are production designers, was always considered a man's job. Costume designers were all men. They hated the thought that they not only had to compete with another man for the job, they now had to compete with a woman. And it was their view of women was it was a romantic view that we would I would take her out we'll get married she'll be home and I'm gonna make a billion dollars, <laughs> and they were very upset when women came, and were good at their jobs, knew more than the man or whatever In didn't know cases, more, right. but, and yet, and they thought well I'm gonna have to 
I have two people I have to be worried about. My roommate from college and this girl. Mm-hmm. And who is this girl? And it's unfortunate because I guess it's it's just continuing to, you know, we see through what's come out that it's these insecurities persist. But let's turn to a slightly more pleasant topic, which is the movies that you have liked this year. I understand they may be fewer and further between than some years, but you have been a member of the Academy for many decades, I think going back to the 70s. 1977, that's 40 years. There you go. Happy anniversary, absolutely. Thank you. That is so... <laughs> Academy members are assumed to lean in one way or another because of their demographics. This seems to be the prevailing thought now. And there is no question that it's a group that's predominantly composed of older white males. But being older or being white or being males does not actually necessarily mean that you are going to vote the way people think you're going to vote. And you, if you'll forgive me, I guess would fall into the... the I'm the older white... Older white white lady. Lady. But... Now, that means that you are, just to cite one example, you're supposed to last year have loved La La Land and hated Moonlight. In fact, how did you feel? I voted for Moonlight. You mentioned the movies that I have been involved in, Mm -hmm. right? Rocky, it's not a girl's movie. Mm -hmm. As an executive, Cuckoo's Nest, not necessarily a girl's movie. Coming Home, a war movie. I produced Hamburger Hill, a war movie. We are all different people. And so to that point, what are some of the movies that you've loved the most this year? Well, I've not seen enough, truly, but I admire three billboards. I think Frances McDormand, I believe she will win the Oscar as Best Actress, and there have been wonderful actresses this year. It's a tough year. But now I'm speaking only as a woman and as a mother. I really believed her performance was not a performance. I believed that her child had been killed, and it was a real story. I've never seen that kind of performance, ever. And I've been going to the movies for 85 years. So, three billboards. What else have you loved? Darkest Hour. I loved Winston Churchill. I loved that speech. I I heard him say the speech. I was in college, Northwestern, during that time, and I heard him say, you know, we will fight them on the bound. And it made me also think about, and I know this is not the subject, made me think about Franklin Roosevelt and thought that there was a time in the world when there were two men who came from privileged backgrounds and who saved the world. I like The Shape of Water and Sally Hawkins, mm-hmm. incredible, incredible performance. And I loved, loved The Monster from the Sea. <laughs> it, but someone said it reminded them of The Monster from the Black Lagoon. The Creature from the Black but Lagoon. It's that's, called The Creature. Yeah, and yeah. that's what Guillermo del Toro says inspired his movie. Oh, he is a darling, darling man, by the way. I like him very much. And the other film I saw was The Florida Project. Which is my favorite movie of the year. Well, that's why. <laughs> that's why the Oscars is like horse racing right. or whatever it's like. You didn't like it. I liked it less. It's sentimental. I don't use profanity. <laughs> and it's a made-up movie. I didn't believe it. Didn't do it for you. It didn't do it for me. (laughs) However, 
the sweet drama, The Big Sick, I thought was extraordinary. Wonderful performances. It has almost everything. MGM used to make those movies, right? And they were always two people that you would never think are together and are together and that she gets sick and she gets well. I mean, what could be better? I guess it is the oldest thing, love found and love lost and then found again, right? Yes. The movie I most want to see is The Post because I worked in publishing in the day and when The Washington Post exposed papers. papers, we published them in paperback. And I was at Bannum, I guess. Mm-hmm. And we went to the Washington Post and we got to walk around in the room and there was Ben Bradley. We did not meet Mrs. Graham. But if ever there were two actors who looked like Mrs. Graham and Ben Bradley were typecast by Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, it just sounds like the perfect casting. And I think an important film for now. That's their pitch. The other movie I most want to see is Lady Bird because the lead girl is Shersha Ronan, who was in a movie I made in 2007 called Death Defying Acts, and it was about Houdini. Mm -hmm. She is the most professional, brilliant young woman. I want to ask you about another thing that happened while you were at UA. Since a new Star Wars movie is coming out on December 15th, The Last Jedi, and will undoubtedly make hundreds of millions of dollars for Disney, I wonder if you can read aloud something that I found that you sent to your colleagues at UA in 1975, two years before Star Wars became the biggest film of all time as a release for your rival, 20th Century Fox. So I'm going to hand this to you. This is dated October 13th, 1975. Oh, I forgot this. The subject line is The Star Wars (laughs) by George Lucas. And what it is is a memo. I was at United Artists, and my colleague, my boss, the guy who I spoke to the most, Mike Medavoy, and it says to Mike Medavoy from Marsh and Ambassador, October 13, 1975. And I had read the script, The Star Wars. And I wrote, Dear Mike, I like this very much. The innocence of the story plus the sophistication of the world he will depict makes for the best kind of motion picture. It is truly a film for children of all ages. And at the bottom it says Carbon Copy EP, Eric Pleskow. Right. So it went to him, right? Right. And by the time we were there, Fox had already bought it. Well, the fact that you saw the potential in Star Wars before anyone else is also a testament to you. But you have a doc of your own coming out. You're working on a big screen remake of Huckleberry Finn. Yes. You're fighting very hard to help a woman replace Donald Trump as president. You're pretty amazing. And I thank you for joining us. Thank you. And now for my conversation with Angelina Jolie. I sat down with the 42-year-old at the Hollywood offices of Netflix, which financed, theatrically distributed, and is now streaming First They Killed My Father, the fourth film that Jolie has directed after 2011's In the Land of Blood and Honey, 2014's Unbroken, and 2015's By the Sea. Over the course of our conversation, Jolie and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, what it was like growing up in Hollywood as the daughter of two actors, Marceline Bertrand and John Voight 
who split up when she was still a baby, how at an early age she wound up exploring acting herself, and why she seriously contemplated quitting the business in her early 20s, shortly before she won Golden Globes for her work in the TV movies George Wallace and Gia in 1998 and 1999 respectively, and then a year after that, at the age of 24, becoming the seventh youngest person ever to win the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Girl Interrupted, how she came to her first movie star vehicle, 2001's Lara Croft Tomb Raider, and how it, in turn, led her to, of all things, Cambodia, the Cambodian author Luang Ung, the beginning of her humanitarian work, and the first of her six children, Maddox, how her relationships and work have shaped each other. She met her first husband, Johnny Lee Miller, on 1995's Hackers, her second husband, Billy Bob Thornton, on 1999's Pushing Tin, and, most famously, her third husband, Brad Pitt, on 2005's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, a marriage that ended, perhaps not coincidentally, shortly after they worked together again on By the Sea, how she handled the initial loss of her anonymity, and how being a celebrity constantly followed by the paparazzi and ridden about by the tabloids and approached by the public impacts the way she lives her life and goes about her work today, why, after giving two of the most acclaimed performances of her career, in 2007's A Mighty Heart and 2008's Changeling, the latter of which brought her a second Oscar nomination, her first for Best Actress, she began turning her attention towards directing, and since 2011 has made four films, all dark, three about war, and two of them in languages other than English, and starring people who actually live through the events they are recreating, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We always begin by asking every episode just where our guest was born and what their folks did for a living. Your answer in some ways is more, I guess, more known than most, but I'll leave it to you to... Mine is ridiculously Hollywood. (laughs) I was born in Hollywood, Cedars-Sinai. My parents were both trained to be actors. My father is still an actor. My mother gave up her career to raise children. Mm -hmm. And do you think that having folks who had been actors made you more or less interested in going down that route yourself? Obviously, you couldn't resist, it seems, but like, how did that affect you as a kid? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. I don't, looking back, I think it would have been nice to, I don't, I never had parents that suggested I could be anything else. Mm -hmm. So there's many, many positives. The one odd negative is that a lot of people in this town think that being an actor is the greatest thing in the world and the greatest thing to be. And so you're pushed to be that before you really are able to consider other ways of life. And and that somehow is this natural thing that everybody should want. I think the positive side, though, is being artists. My mother, having been trained and she worked with Lee Strasberg, and, mm-hmm. is that she was very attuned to emotion. I think artistic parents tend to be very creative and have conversations with their children on a certain emotional level that maybe not everybody does in that same way because their job is to study human behavior and communicate. Mm -hmm. So I think that that made her an interesting mother. Is the reason that you go by Angelina Jolie instead of Angelina Jolie Voigt because you as as a young person wanted to sort of distance yourself from the whole Hollywood aspect of things or what was what was that about no I mean I was certainly well I was entering Hollywood I I do think it was wanting to do it I didn't feel that close to my father I felt more my mother's daughter when I was a child and so that was one part of it and the second part of it is I did want to have my own identity and I didn't want to walk into a room as John's daughter I wanted to 
see if I could get the job on my own and not be hired for a name. So So you mentioned Lee Strasberg, and I read that, I mean, I guess your, your first technical credit in movies was when you were seven with like a thing with your dad. Is that That's right? Looking right. to get out? That's right. So <laughs> you forget. I, I yes. <laughs> My brother was supposed to do it. At the last minute, he wouldn't. And so then I ended up doing it. Right. Yeah. But it seems like when it became more of a conscious decision that this was something you wanted to explore, I read it as early as 11, you enrolled at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute and then later did other things with theater, the Met Theater Ensemble Workshop in LA, which was with some impressive folks. And then also, mm-hmm. I think you co-founded a theater group with Tom Bauer. And so my question is just, was there ever a time when you thought perhaps your future as an actress would be in the theater as opposed to screen acting? I don't know. (laughs) I don't think I ever thought I was that good in theater. I think it's a very particular talent to be on stage and to communicate to the back of the the theater. Um, I always felt that I was more internal. And funny enough, I had to recently, when I did Maleficent, I went back to my theater roots to to get more comfortable again trying to hit that back at the theater uh-huh. and find that voice in a more theatrical performance. Theater for me is, is such an extraordinary challenge and something that I just didn't ever believe in myself as being good enough, in uh-huh. fact, to do. I went back and read a lot of the profiles and things that were written early in your career, and it seems like people would always come back to this idea, and I don't know if you would subscribe to it, but that you you were a bit of a quote-unquote wild child, that you had a, I guess your boyfriend no. was living with you at 14, Not me. you moved out at 16. <laughs> Do you think you were rebelling against anything as a kid, or was that overstated? <laughs> I love how the entire world knows that I live with somebody at 14, and that somehow is relevant. It sounds weirder than it was, I think. I always made very strong choices. I was very strong-willed. I didn't blend in very well, all of those things. I think I still am a bit like that. And I don't know, you know, I see that same wild in my children in that sense of wanting to kind of break barriers and, and, and I see them finding something very strong and, and needing to go their own way and maybe sometimes that it's, it's against what society's norms are. And I think that's wonderful. I think that's the thing that eventually makes for change. And so, it, it, but of course, it needs to be directed. You know, when you're young, it can get you in a lot of trouble, and it can be self-destructive, and it can be just chaotic. And when it finds purpose, it can be fantastic, and it can be something that then guides you in your life. So, a sense of wild or a sense of unconventional is, I think, something that I have always embraced and try to continue to embrace that. And in terms of channeling it, as you say, towards something positive, it sounds like one of these things had suggested that when you broke up with that boyfriend, I guess at 16 or whatever, that's when you really <laughs> decide you're going to focus on acting. I, for some reason, that would have given you more direct. In <laughs> what, what, do you know, to be very, this is my like, did not know I would be discussing this today. Well, what's interesting was, to be very honest, yeah. my mother knew that when I was 14, I was going to start dating. And she felt, knowing me, that she wanted it to be on my terms in my room, on uh, under her roof, uh, in a way that was safer and where I could feel in control. And And it was actually a very smart choice because I didn't date again until I got married. Really? So her extreme decision then actually made me much more 
what happened was, yes, when we separated, you know, some of my girlfriends had dated many people. I had lived with someone. I was ready to be alone. I was ready to work. Right. And I focused on work, and I moved out, and I graduated early, and I got to work. And, and yes, didn't entertain a relationship until I met Johnny and, and got married. And so it was at 17, just a year after that, that I guess you had your first sizable film role, and this is in 1993, the sort of futuristic thriller, Cyborg 2, Glass Shadow. And this Believe was... Or not, I was out of my mind excited that I got that role. Hey, you know, it was a, kind of a kick-ass uh, heroine. Oh, I and... jumped up and down on the bed. It was my <laughs> first big... My mom and I were out of our minds. And so I guess that was a very physical... Sort of almost the precursor yeah. to the, some of the roles you would play later. Yeah, I mean, I did audition for a lot of normal roles. I just didn't get them. <laughs> so... You know, I didn't really fit into those things. And so I was very lucky that I came up at a time when female action heroes, female strong roles, female leaders it were were kind of becoming okay and kind of starting to, you know, it just, it just, I was very, very lucky that I hit that moment. But when you saw the movie, what was your reaction? I threw up. Literally? Yeah, I threw up. Yeah. Why? Well, listen, I'm somebody that's still, and I won't name which films, but I, <laughs> I don't see a lot of my films. Mm-hmm. Because my idea of what they were or what I felt things, I tend to not like what I see a final film. So I think I worked on it and I had in my mind what the film was going to be. I never thought it was going to be a great film, (laughs) but but I thought that, you know, it was okay and I gave my all. And then I saw it and it was just, I mean, now I think it's something I adore. Now it's something that's hysterical and I show it my kids can see a piece of it. It's so funny. Right. But then I just felt like I'd embarrassed myself and I didn't know if this was something I could do for a living and I didn't like being exposed in a way, not what other people would think. I just really didn't like what I saw. I really didn't like me. I didn't, it didn't feel like me. It felt like I'd betrayed something and I, and I did something I didn't like. So I got really, really upset. And my brother was there with me and he helped me and made me feel like it was going to be okay. But I I quickly went back to acting school. <laughs> because you felt that you, you were lacking in something? Was it somehow your your fault that you was Sure. Well, I mean, yes. I think you always – it's your job to do the best you can. If something doesn't work, you can't blame other people. You have to look at where you can be better. You're part of it if you're going to be an artist and you're going to want to – you know. so you try to solve things so next time. Next time you'll get it right. Next time you'll – You'll watch for those things and fix them next time you'll, you know, so. And as it turns out, that seems to have been the case because I think over the next few years, people started to notice and respect your work more. There was the Hacker in Hackers. There was the Drifter in Foxfire. These are mid-90s. And then the Crime Boss Girlfriend in Playing God. In that same period there, as you referenced a second ago, you got married for the first time to your co-star in Hackers, Johnny Lee Miller. And an interview at that time, you were saying that you felt that sort of your identity could get lost in that time as, a, as your, your identity changes when you're with somebody and that in a way it was the roles that helped you, the roles that you picked afterwards that helped you to reclaim your identity. Do you know what you were referring to at that point? I don't know. Was I worried about losing an identity or was I just really trying to figure out who I am like we all are, yeah. right? So yes, I think you you want to figure out who you are and you know, there's a lot that's not in my nature to be an actor, and I'm very happy that I was able to be, and I'm very lucky and very fortunate. I realized how much it was for my mother when she passed away because I felt very differently about it as soon as she was gone. 
I think when I started acting, it was really, it was a good means to, it was a job. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to help my mom with bills. It was a creative job, something that you get to explore different times in history, different people, different types of person, you know, different sides of yourself, learn different skills. So it's a wonderful job to have when you're, as you grow, as you learn and and as as a person. But you also are not those people and you're young and you don't know exactly who you are. And yet you also get a microphone in front of your face and you're 17, 18, and people asking you your opinions. You haven't formed them right. yet and you shouldn't form them yet completely. So yes, I think I was trying to find which characters made sense to me and also trying to stay true to myself, mm-hmm. not just take any job or do anything to work, but to try to f- define something that made sense to me. I guess things really kind of kicked into high gear, a sort of no turning back when you had these back-to-back TV films for which you won Golden Globes. There was George Wallace for TNT. You played Wallace's second wife, Cornelia, and then Gia for HBO as the ill-fated model. And I just wonder if these were sort of the first parts, it seems like maybe that you really got to dive into a, a character and do the kind of work that in subsequent years you've, you know, sort of a, a precursor to the to the more complex characters you played later on. Did you feel that with one or both of those, you were taking it to a different level? Yes. Yeah, well, that I just got, I was allowed to do a certain kind of work with directors and certain character work that I, that wasn't demanded of me before and very, very lucky to have those roles and work with those those other actors and, and those directors. So I was, I was very happy. I also, it was a nice time with Johnny, it was a nice time in my life, and it was a nice time to kind of explore relationships, and you learn a lot in these films. Why, after life. Gia, though, did you then take a break and go back to school, I guess, at this <laughs> point for NYU? Like, and this this well, was the first thought of directing, probably, right? It's so hard to explain yourself when you're still a mystery to yourself. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Again, I, I think I've always been in this kind of struggle with being an actor or being public. It never answered everything for me. So it was never that I suddenly got to act and then why would I make choices? I made choices because I still wasn't me. I still wasn't feeling a complete and whole as a person. After G, I, I separated from Johnny and I separated amicably. We still are very close mm-hmm. friends. But we were young and I was moving to New York and we were all just, we were You know, there's life to be lived and we needed some space to do so and help each other grow. So I moved to New York on my own, didn't know anybody, got an apartment and started to go to NYU because I thought I had expressed what I could as an actor. And now I wanted to figure out who else I was. And I thought acting was over at that point. Yeah, I was ready to to kind of have a different life. I'd grown up in, you know, Hollywood and New York, but mainly Hollywood. I'd done what everybody said you should do, become an actor. You know, this is what should make you happy. Right. Right. People tell you if you if you look good enough, if you have money, if you have success, if you're an actor, this, these are all the things that should make a person happy. I was miserable. Right. I was completely unhappy. And this so is after the Golden Globes, this is after you know the well. When I moved there, I, they hadn't come out yet, and I hadn't won anything. But but yes, I mean the years that would follow that I would win awards and lose my privacy were not necessarily happy years. I was grateful to be acknowledged as an artist. I was grateful to be working. I was grateful to be able to help my mom. But I was very, very lost because it didn't, I didn't like that life. I didn't like, you know, having a public life. So it was was weird. It was a a strange time. When did that, when did you first sort of realize that privacy, anonymity, whatever was, was gone? Do you remember? It was after Gia. Mm -hmm. 
And I was I had been going on the subway to school every day. And then I was being stared at on the subway. And then someone followed me home. So it wasn't as much at the time. There wasn't this kind of people with camera phones or paparazzi. It was more because when people see films like that film in particular dealt with someone coming to terms with their own sexuality and also dealt with AIDS. So the people that identified with this film were people who were dealing with some of those issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite an emotional person, I'm very empathetic. And so for me, when, when somebody follows me home and tells me things about their life, the months that would follow would be people who had AIDS, people who were coming out to their parents for the first time and needed to talk to somebody, people who were young and lost. And it's impossible to not want to sit for hours and talk to everyone mm-hmm. and feel a responsibility to do so and, and let that into your soul in a way. So that part of it is the privacy I'm talking about right. that I lost. And you feel this different connection to the world and you feel like you're a little more open and you have a responsibility. And that would just weighed, it was a different life. So I, I felt more, I stayed home a lot. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to answer those questions. I didn't know how to help and I didn't, I wasn't strong enough to respond to other people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to be what somebody would, what I was expected to be either publicly, privately, with I, I just yeah. really didn't know. With all that being the case, how did you end up not only back in L.A., I guess, but back acting and in the film role that you won your Oscar for, Girl Interrupted? You know, it sounds like you were ready to pack it in and then you'd have some of the best work of your life. Well, thank you. Maybe when you're ready to walk away from everything, you you have a certain freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't move to L.A. and do Girl Interrupted. I, I, I moved when I met Billy Bob. Mm-hmm. And then I moved away again and moved to London, and then I moved back when I met Brad. So I, <laughs> I kept trying to leave. Right. Again, you know, I feel connected to this town for many reasons, but I, I did want to also have a, a different life. Mm-hmm. You know, these these roles come and and you you work on different things and you have different experiences. I was lucky that the you know, girl interrupted came, and I was there was a part of me that was feeling quite mad and quite uh, unhinged, and and in fact, I approached that role as somebody who wasn't crazy, but somebody who was extremely sane in a world that didn't make sense to her mm-hmm. and really, really searching for answers and somebody to be honest with her. And I think that's what I was desperately wanting at that time, somebody to be really straight with me. And so, yes, that film came. But at the same time as that film, kind of like my earlier life, it coincided with a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that time, I don't remember as much about winning an award, but finding a kindred spirit mm-hmm. in Billy, somebody who's 20 years older than me wise, extraordinary artist, been through a lot, really grounding, really kind, yeah, really funny, and just a brilliant, caring person. So loved the years we spent together and learned a lot from him. So, so, you know, so your artistic journey kind of always coincides with life. life, And if you're lucky, your your life remains more full than those characters (laughs) on screen. So after an Oscar, though, there's there's always this moment, you know, from talking to enough other folks who have been in that moment that it's like, what are you supposed to do? And there's, I think, for a lot of people, it it changes the kinds of offers that are coming at them. There can be different considerations about what you're looking for. For you, I just wonder, it seems like Mm -hmm. Gone in 60 Seconds, it looks like mathematically would have already been in the can when you won. But now you get offered Lara Croft Tomb Raider, which in this case is 
an action film, I guess for the first time since Cyborg 2, that you would it be expecting. It was time to revisit it the was <laughs> Well, but I mean, a $115 million adaptation of a video game. Yeah. How did you end up doing? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, no, 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 no. knock on the movie. No, I'm no, just no. I get curious. it. No, I think that's probably exactly why I did do I think this yeah. idea that now you win an Oscar, you're supposed to take yourself seriously in this way and start to kind of... And and for me, I I just wanted life experiences. And to be honest, when they first called me about it, I said no, because I'd seen the video game and thought it was a ridiculous idea. And and then they came out and they said, you'll travel the world and train with the British military. And I thought, oh, who, who could possibly say no to that? <laughs> and thank God I did, because I traveled the world and went to Cambodia and my life would then change. It was also a healthy choice. I do these things sometimes, like I noticed... Action movies for me have not just been about kind of being, jumping around and as much, and I love to do that. Mm-hmm. But I tend to do them when I, when I need to feel strong. So when, when my mother passed away, I did Wanted because mm-hmm. I thought I'm going to cry and cover my head with a sheet or I'm going to do an action movie. Right. When I had the twins and I had been in a nightgown for months, I decided I would do Salt. <laughs> you know, so you go through some things. I'm looking for one now, in fact, because right. of this time in my life, I feel like I, I need to... Kick some ass. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so one other thing that was remarked upon at the time, and, and you had something to say about it, was that Lara in the first uh, Lara Croft movie has some very frank conversations with her dead father, played by none other than Mr. John Voight. Mm-hmm. You said, quote, I wanted to say a lot of those things to my dad, and he wanted to say them to me, and I wanted to hear them, close quote, which sounds a lot like something I've heard Jane Fonda talk about on, on Golden Pond with Henry Fonda, where their characters said some things that they themselves probably would not have. Do you find that kind of thing? Have you found that cathartic as now an adult, however many years after that first one that we talked about, to to work with your father? Yeah, no, it was good. It was good to do. It was an early time for us to... I was in a stronger place to be able to handle our relationship differently. So I reached out and felt that it was an opportunity. And we had those weeks writing our, and working and talking about character. And it was a, one of the first times we that I could think of, and probably since, really where we would do something as a team together. And so it was what was said, but it was the doing of it that was a big deal. Yeah. So no, it was, I was very. It was good that we did that. And and John and I have gotten to know each other. And through grandchildren now, we've kind mm-hmm. of we're finding a new relationship, and it's very very nice. But we've had a we've had some difficulties, and it's good that we're through art is is a way we've been able to talk. We we found it's it's the common language. We don't really talk politics well. We talk <laughs> art very well. Right. So to come back to what you were referring to a minute ago, among the, the far-flung locations where you guys shot that movie was Cambodia. And from the way I've heard you speak about your time there, it sounds like it was almost an awakening, maybe an epiphany. Like, So what, what happened there for you that changed the way you looked at the world? Well, so much. I mean, before I, before I went, I was told we're going to shoot in Cambodia. I realized there's so little... I knew what, you know, Cambodia, what my thoughts were, what had happened. I started to do research. And when I discovered how much had happened in this country, I not only realized how much my education was lacking, but I also expected to meet a very broken people. We were the first big film back after the war, and what was it going to be like? And when I met Cambodian people and I walked the land, I felt their resilience, I felt their spirit. And, you, you know, imagine 
too, of course, I growing up, yes, I traveled a little bit, as you do growing up here. I traveled to London. You traveled to New York. You don't come in contact with this kind of a, a country from coming from this kind of, of a war and this level of poverty. And so I just really, really understood the bigger picture in life. I really understood that I had so much more I needed to learn, and I felt very ignorant and very angry with myself. And yet I was also excited to think there are these extraordinary cultures and people, and I want to get to know them, and I want to learn from them. And maybe this is what I've been searching for my whole life, is this, is maybe this is my journey. I did not know at the time it was going to lead me to my family. We'll swing back to that in in a moment. But Lara Croft, the success of that leads not only to a sequel, but to a much higher profile for you. And I guess curious how you handled that. And if you can connect the dots from there through what must have been the, the peak point of insanity as far as the spotlight being on, on you with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where for the first time you and Brad are working together. And in the aftermath of that, when, when you guys got together, I cannot imagine that anyone has ever had to deal with more media scrutiny and observation than you guys did at that point. So I just wonder how you, if you remember how what that moment in time was like for you. Well, I think you need to back up to the years that before that, because the reason why I was all right was the years that led to that and why I was able to to withstand that because by that point, I was a very different person. And how Cambodia changed me, when I left Cambodia, I was much more conscious of the world. I started to learn more about what was happening. I, I became more involved and I learned about refugees and UNHCR and I wanted to educate myself further. And I spent two years traveling and before I was a goodwill ambassador and and since then, I've become a special envoy, and I've dedicated 16 years of my life now to this work because I really – I have so much respect and so much gratitude. The education I have had through the extraordinary survivors I have met around the world has really changed my perspective. So when you see people that have suffered so much, when you see that if, if only they had a spotlight on them – you then don't complain so much about your stupid little problems, right? You don't wake up and think, oh, it's so difficult for me because of X, Y, and Z. You simply don't. You think, all right, I have an opportunity to speak publicly. Now I have something to say. Finally, I have something to say. And I have something that needs you know, some attention and some focus. And I now am starting to form a voice. And so in those years, I would find my voice and find my purpose. And above all, I found Maddox. And the choice when you choose to become a parent, you choose to, from that moment on, you, you know, the center of your world is, is the child, right? So in one moment, you're, so, you're caught up in whatever it is that you're worried about. And the next minute is, as long as this person's okay, mm-hmm. nothing else matters. And it's extremely freeing. It's the most wonderful thing that happens when you become a parent. And so I changed completely with my work and becoming a mother. And that became the center of my life. So when I was doing Mr. and Mrs., I was mad, was two then. By the end of it, he was three. By the time we finished filming and by the time it came out, 
you know, I had this amazing little boy and nothing else mattered. So nothing would from that moment on and still doesn't really get under my skin in any way like it used to. As long as he's healthy, they're healthy, it's okay. That's amazing because I, I would just think when you can't have a moment's peace or whatever out in the out in the world, it would piss me it, off. No, it, it does, but you just at least, at least by the time it became that bad, mm-hmm. I had some perspective on what really bad is, yeah. right? At right. least I could, but right. but no, I think now it was more like today. It's it was harder when your child wants to do something or go to the park or do certain things, and they have to deal with it. Right. When my kids have to deal with paparazzi or my kids have to deal with people commenting on them or judging them or having a thing, that really upsets me. I was really impressed. I happened to be at the Jane documentary premiere at the Hollywood Bowl. And you were across the aisle. And I saw a few people, you know, I guess probably are always going to try to, can I get a photo or whatever? And because you were with, I think, all of your mm-hmm. kids at that. And I thought you just, it was amazing how calmly you handled this. I would, I, as again, I would maybe, I don't have, clearly don't have the, the patience Listen, that you I, do. But. I, I don't have a perfect temperament. <laughs> I lose, I lose my temper. <laughs> I have my moments where I, where I go really crazy. But I don't mind being public in the speaking to people and talking to people and sharing. If I can make somebody, if if somebody comes up to me in a store with their child and I can make a little kid happy, you know, it's so nice. How mm-hmm. nice is that, you know? It can be a beautiful exchange to be a public person. And people can talk to me about a lot of things yeah. from cancer to motherhood to mental health issues. You know, it's that's that's a beautiful way to connect to the rest of the world. There's the other side of it that is different. Well, one other, maybe if there's a, a, a third side I want to ask you about, is that it seems like one of the things that makes great actors great, it would I'm not an actor, but it would seem to me, is being able to observe people behaving naturally. You go out, you see yeah. how people... When that becomes harder to do because people don't leave you alone or whatever, yeah. do you feel that that has actually made your job as an actor harder? When I was young, yes, I used to do a lot of... St- I mean, that's all I did when I lived my years in New York. I would just go for walks for hours and hours and just always alone, always watching people, studying things, studying behavior. I didn't become successful when I was 13. You know, I did have many years of that. And, you know, I suppose you, you have, I have enough close people around me. I study their <laughs> behavior, right. six little people's right. behavior constantly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's different when you're a public person. It, and and I, I feel more for young actors today who are starting, who because I think, you know, my generation, we started, and I did quite a few movies before I was public. Mm-hmm. I guess the camera phone wasn't there it, right it away. It takes it. We took yeah. a really long. It was. It was till much later. Yeah. So, but young people today that have success, they're going to get all of it immediately. Right. And that I, I'm not sure how they're going to handle that. A Mighty Heart, 2007, Michael Winterbottom's version of the memoir of Marianne Pearl, the wife of the journalist who was killed. You got some of the best response to your work that I think you've had. It seems like that, I believe that was the first time you played somebody who was still alive, a real person who was still living. I guess so. What's that like? That was complicated because Marianne was a dear friend. So it's both an extreme honor, but then you have the pressure of, this is your real friend and and her real life. And I remember about two days before we started shooting, I was sitting in the kitchen and her little boy, Adam, came in and was asking me questions and talking a little bit. And he said a few things about his dad. And I just looked at this little boy and thought, that's my job. My job is to show this little boy how much his mother loves his father and how much she tried 
So that's a different kind of job. The responsibility to it, the commitment, the desire to get it right, very, very different. And of course, because I know her and love her, it was also a, f- a funny thing to be doing something that I'm, you know, you feel like you're mimicking your girlfriend in a, at a party and so I had moments, but I was very, very nervous and I was, and, and, but yet she was, she was the most supportive. She was, she made it very clear to me that I couldn't fail because my heart was in the right, right place. A year after that, another one that, that people really responded to, and in this case, Oscar nomination, this was Changeling, woman whose son is kidnapped and then returned, but she doesn't think it's the same kid. This was with Clint. And yeah. I know that he is one of your biggest admirers, and I. it seems like from things that you've said that I've read, it was a pretty special one for you that also maybe I would imagine further opened you up to the idea that you as an actor could also direct. Is that fair to say? I think even then I still didn't think I could be a director. It never crossed my mind. That happened very suddenly. But but I did learn a lot from Clint, and, and when I finally did direct, I did think often of different things he did, Winterbottom, many of the directors I worked with. And yes, I'm a huge fan of Clint's. Changeling came out in 2008, which means you probably made it in 2007, at the beginning of which you lost your mother, as you mentioned earlier. And I, I just wonder, do you think that it's an emotional performance, it's a tough rip. she's not lost her mother, she lost her kid, but are you somebody who channels what you're going through into the, into the work? It was absolutely, I needed, I did, as I mentioned earlier, I, I tend to do that thing where I do an action movie when I'm at a, a right. low in my life. So I went off and did Wanted and kind of got a certain kind of pain out. Mm-hmm. I was an emotional wreck and it was good to be able to have an outlet to be able to let so much pain come out and so much so many tears mm-hmm. so it was good and then also I, I really I had this feeling I just couldn't face a first Christmas without my mother so I really wanted to be pregnant so during Changeling I got pregnant with the, the twins well time so, yes so how do we end up three years after that with you directing something that you wrote this is the first this was your directorial debut in the land of blood and honey this was a I think that tell me if this is an adequate synopsis, but because I certainly I saw it, it's not an easily summarizable movie, but a, a film about a Bosniak or a Bosnian Muslim prisoner of war in Bosnia during the 90s who is imprisoned in a jail run by the father of a Bosnian Serb soldier she knew before the war. Why that subject matter, and how did you wind up directing it? <laughs> well, I suppose. You know, now that we've talked about my entire life up to this point, <laughs> it oddly does add up in my head. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that looking for um, – I didn't plan to direct. In my work with the UN, one of the conflicts I was having trouble understanding was the war in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia. And there was a few days that I, I got the flu, basically, and I went into this separate room, this white room in Miraval where we have a house – to stay away from the kids so I didn't get them sick. And I never have that time. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know what to do with myself. And I thought, I'll write a story. I'll write a script. I've never done it. I'll do it for fun. And the exercise I want to give myself to learn about, I want to learn about that war. And I want to understand how people who are lovers and friends can get to a place where they can murder each other. I really, I, I want to know. If that's how the story starts and that's how the story ends, what happens in the middle that does that to a society and to family members and lovers. And so that was what it was. And it gave me kind of a good exercise to do homework on the region and travel to the region. And and so that's what, and I never planned on really showing it to anybody. And I was doing it for myself. And then 
somebody saw it and said they thought it wasn't so bad and then somebody else saw it and the next thing I knew they said we have the, the funds for it and and I was possessive only because I it was political and sensitive and also has a sexuality and I wanted to get it right uh-huh. so I felt I needed to to do that uh-huh. to get it right and then I remember the day where suddenly I realized I was directing a movie and I was I didn't I really didn't understand how I'd gotten there <laughs> and I really felt completely overwhelmed but very full of purpose and very excited to work with actors from another country and well, that that's where I wanted exciting. to go here because it seems like I'm sure that in many ways you've continued to evolve as a director since then with the I think it's now this was your first I killed my father I think is the fourth right. but it also seems like you had instincts that have held true you know through them all in this case cast local people some of them have actually lived through the events you're depicting and then the different thing that you did on this one, which I can't imagine how much more complicated this made it for you, but I understand why you did it, was to film it in Bosnian and in English. So you're basically mm-hmm. making two movies. Well, I it, it was written in English and I and it was funded in English and you kind of are in the habit of that's what people do. They kind of want to, they think the way to do this is the, the audience and you want to reach as many people and so you're kind of raised to believe that that's what it should be in order to communicate. And nobody really questioned it. And then I was working with them, and I went to the bathroom, and I came back. And before I sat down, the whole group who I'd been talking to had switched, and they were speaking their their native tongue, right? It was formerly known mm-hmm. as Serbo-Croatian. And I listened, and I heard them, and it's just – it was a different personality. It's a different them and such a beautiful language, and and it just felt – wrong to not shoot it in their language but of course I'd made a deal financially to do it in English so they said to me I said I I really really feel it has to be in their local language and they said if you fall behind even a day you can only do English you know but if you want to try to do both you knock yourself out and so I said to the actors and I said listen we've been challenged so let's take the challenge that's and crazy. and let's let's do on average two takes of each and let's switch quick and let's be ready we can you know we can do this and they obviously for their own country were very committed to that challenge that's amazing what a, what a gift for them to have and then i guess you know with first they killed my father it seems like you've now found financial partners who see that there is value in telling it in just Forget about English. Do it in the in the, in the local language. Uh, local and, language. And also, I think, give credibility to the, you know, the audience. An audience that is interested in these subject matters wants to hear it in, in the voice of the, of the people, in the language it was spoken. They want to know the history in the real yeah. voice. You know, don't speak down to your audience. Don't think that they can't hear that. It's also very important because languages like Khmer, very special languages, ancient languages that we need to strengthen. We need to make sure that they stay, that they exist, that they're taught, that they... It's part of preserving the culture. So three years after In the Land of Blood and Honey comes out, you're back directing again. So I assume it was not an unpleasant experience. And so how with Unbroken, this is something people in Hollywood, I guess, had been trying to do for over 50 years and we're not getting there. (laughs) Here, you're the one that cracks the code. And why did you fight so hard to be the one who got the chance to do that? And, And just I know you ended up becoming very close with Louis Zamperini, and I remember you introducing him the night that you became the youngest person ever to get the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award, and he was there, and then a year later when the movie came out, he was gone. And so I just, just had this, seems like a, just a kind of a whirlwind of a experience with that one. 
Yes, it was. I mean, you have to. I'm not somebody who's religious or spiritual. I'm not sure what I am, but I do believe when you're very much on path, when you're listening to your own instincts and you're, you're coming from the right place, things sometimes you can see them and they kind of fall in line and you can recognize what you should be doing. And this was that for me. I kind of looked, you know, I loved directing. I realized I much preferred giving the spotlight to other actors. I much preferred not being in front of the camera. I love being with the team. I love I love the community. I love the family. And I even like the responsibility uh, of being the director. So you, you read, they give you, here's all the different movies that are out there that, you know, different to talk to studios. Right. So you're going to go in as a director, have meetings with studios. Right. And, and so I looked through these lists and on the universal list, there was this one. And I even went home and said to Brad, there's this one. And, you know, I, I do love history and mm-hmm. World War Two, of course. Is, and he said, oh, honey, that one's been around forever. He had known about it. Yeah. He's like, that's <laughs> not. And I was like, but. But what is that one? So I went in, I read a script on it, and and I went in and basically explained why I didn't like the script. Mm-hmm. And Donna kind of said, well, read this, read the book. And I remember saying to my agent, I'm never going to get this job. I don't even know why I'm, you know. And why did you think you'd never get the job? Well, it was just, it's a big World War II movie. Mm-hmm. It's a big studio movie. But then I read the book, and I was just... I had to. I had to. I had to understand Louis. It's like it was a it was a journey I needed to take. I wanted to know this man. I wanted to know how you go through all of this and then survive that way with your spirit intact. And I love the idea of these stories. It's somebody who's not perfect and actually not special in any way other than his will and his spirit are strong. And I think we need more of those. And then when I got closer to doing it, they I said, "Well, can I meet him? Where is he?" And they said. <laughs> He knows where you live because he can see your house. <laughs> oh, my God. And Normally that would be creepy, but in yeah, this case. Yeah, <laughs> he, he knows where you live. And and right up from the bedroom window was, yeah, he was you know up the mountain, but I could see him. That's unbelievable. And, yeah, we became very, very close. So it wasn't as long a gap between films two and three that you directed as it was between one and two. I think just a, a year after Unbroken was by the sea, you've laughed about the fact that it was pretty much right on the heels of your wedding in 2014. It's not the way everybody chooses to uh, have a honeymoon. To yeah, it may not go have been a good idea. <laughs> well, I mean, just just to for somebody who hasn't seen it yet, this is another one that you wrote and directed, and you and Brad are playing a couple going through a horrible time after the wife has two miscarriages. Was it a healthy thing to put yourself through at that point? It should have been good for us. To be honest, I wanted to work with him because we worked, we, we, we had met working together and we worked together well. And even though that was a challenging role, we'd matured and I wanted us to do some serious work together and I wanted to see him do that kind of work. So I thought that it could be a good way for us to communicate. And I think in some ways it was, and in some ways we learned some things, but there was a heaviness probably during that situation that, that carried on and... It, it wasn't because of the film, and it, uh, it was something that we were dealing that you know, things happen for different reasons and things, you know, why did I write that exact piece? Why did we feel the way about it we did when we made it? I'm not sure. Well, is it true that you had actually written it years earlier? Because it seems like in some ways, obviously it's about grief, and it's but it's also connected to it in other ways. Forget about anything that we've already talked about. It's if, if I'm correct, I had read that you wrote it when you were, it was shortly after the death of your mother as well, or at least started on it or something at that point. And then also mm-hmm. 
that right when you started filming it was when you had just been through the mastectomy that you had, that you wrote about in the Times, and then when you were finishing it was when you're in the editing room and you had another health scare, right? So, I mean, it just seems like every step of the way there was something. I don't know. I mean, my life has been, I've had many, many extraordinary, very fortunate things happen, and it's also been many different things over the years that have been challenging. So that wasn't a particular time just when I wrote it. I'm, I mean, if we look at it, I had my mastectomy right before I shot Unbroken, in fact. Always before Unbroken, I guess. I mean, just over the span of that decade, I did lose my mother. I did have my mastectomy, and I did then have an ovarian cancer scare and, and have that surgery as well, and, and, and other things, of course, that happen in life that you go through. It really depends. A piece of art can be something that can be healing or and or it can just be difficult. I still don't know. I'm, I'm happy we did that film because we did explore something together. And whatever it was, maybe it didn't solve certain things, but it did. We did communicate something that maybe needed to be communicated to each other. First, They Killed My Father comes two years after that. This is, again, the fourth film you've directed. And really, it, I guess, does it trace back to that that same first trip that you took to Cambodia with Lara Croft, right? Mm-hmm. When I was on that trip, I, I picked up Luang's book. And her book was really the first book that helped me to look at and understand what had happened. What It was the, it was the beginning of an education for me. And how soon after that did you actually connect with her? Because I know you guys are very close now, but and for a while. Yeah, no, soon after. I returned, and I when I started working on... On these issues, I would I plan to go back to Cambodia with the UN and work on with uh, demining groups as well. And turned out that she was working on the campaign to ban landmines and going to Cambodia also and working. So we went together on mission, in fact, to work with these different groups and together and became yeah. very fast friends. So when along the line, this is just, a, I guess, for fun fact purposes, when along the line did you become a citizen of Cambodia in addition to being a citizen of the U.S. This is kind of a, something people may not know. Mm, I w- it was 2005, I believe. How did that happen? Well, I'd been working in the country, uh, but I think when Mad was about, well, maybe he was about one, in fact, the place that Luang and I went to when we went back together was uh, Batambang, which is up in, and then near Semlot, which is uh, near the Thai border. And it was the first and last stronghold of Khmer Rouge, where there's a lot of landmines and and it's where I decided to buy a small piece of land and start an organization to help many things. We look after the Cardamom Mountains. We protect the forest from being deforested, from demining. We we have schools and clinics and TB AIDS clinic and just work with thousands of people there and have for about 14 years it's now. It's named after Maddox, Maddox right? Yeah. yeah. So why did that script, which I believe you and – Long started on a while ago. Mm-hmm. Why did this stay in a desk drawer for as long as it did? Because we, well, so I, when we, we were friends forever and never thought about making it to a movie until I directed Blood and Honey. And then I thought, all right, I do love directing. What do I love? And I loved her piece and, and her film. So I called her and said, we should try to do this. What do you think? And we did. And then we finished it. And we decided, we kind of talked about what it would be like to do it, and we talked about how the country would feel. Would the country be ready? It's very, very complicated to do this film in this country because it's not something people talk about, and some people are still very much in denial. The tribunal had not come to 
um, the decisions it had made only just a few years ago at that time. So there wasn't the guilty verdict yet and the label of genocide in that official way yet. But most of all, we looked at Matt and said, when Matt is, Matt has to do this with us. Matt needs to know, you know, part of doing this is Matt is going to learn a lot about who he is and we can't do it without him. So we told Matt about it. We talked to him. He's known her his whole life. So he knows her story. And um, we said, when you're ready, when you're ready, you got to take it seriously. And when you're ready, we'll all do it together. So I did Unbroken. Other things happened. And then Matt came up to me and said, I'm ready. I want you to make Luang's film. I want to go back. How old was he when he said this to you? 14. Wow. So I guess another partner that was required to do this, I believe they were in from the beginning with you, is Netflix. Mm-hmm. And the big consideration for a lot of filmmakers when it comes to Netflix is that maybe your film doesn't get a wide theatrical release, but it is then available in all but like three or four countries in the whole world. Right. Why did the latter trump the former for you? Well, I had, as you mentioned, I'd, I'd done Blood and Honey, mm-hmm. and I love foreign films. Foreign films are hard. They're really, they tend to be very understood and embraced when they're good and when you when you do them right, in a country, in the country itself. But then globally, when you, you know, it's very hard. It has a very particular audience. And it was so important to me that this film be really seen and understood because I wanted people to have that education that I didn't get. Mm-hmm. I, want, I wanted this country to be understood and seen and the artists from the country to be seen and appreciated. So it was that, it was the global reach. It's also true that in a lot of these countries, there aren't a lot of movie theaters. And Cambodia, Siem Reap, where we were in, I think has three, and nobody really goes. Mm-hmm. So they weren't going to, even though we did put it in theaters there and we showed it and we screened outside and now we've been showing it at schools. And But a lot of people see it this way. They'll see it more mm-hmm. in country, around the country, people that don't have access to the kind of theaters that some people do. So... It was very much the uh, the reason I, I went to Netflix first. You made a couple of or several key decisions with this one that could have gone a different way to do it in Khmer or Khmer is the language? I think both are okay. They're both okay. <laughs> um, the official language of Cambodia to shoot it in Cambodia with, again, locals. Why did you decide that was essential on this one? I guess we've sort of addressed that, but also how receptive was the government and the local people and all the folks who I guess would have to, you know, kind of get on board for you to actually be able to do this. Yes. Well, that was, and that was the other thing. We wanted MAD to be ready and that was one step and we, we needed the funding and the support and we, and, and I really wanted to work with Rithi Pan, who's this extraordinary filmmaker, producer, Cambodian. But then it was, we won't do this if this in any way is going to be disruptive in country. If this in any way, the country's not ready for it and it could have an imbalancing effect or, or do something that because it's obviously this that's more important than anything and and the victims the survivors it's more important that they're okay and when they're ready so we went in country and I'd I'd I go there often we mm-hmm. other so you kind of get a, a feeling and we talked to a lot of people about doing this and and it's a long story but it really is to, to represent everyone and through the eyes of a child is a different way of helping people look at things because it it comes without a certain kind of judgment it comes with a, just a witness two things and to be interpreted and to put in front of people and and to feel it in an emotional way and to show the love and beauty of the family. So we focused on that. And yes, I was very, very surprised that we had the government support. We had many, many meetings with Absara, 
you know, the people that work on the protection of the land, anything I could possibly learn about how to do this and how to do it right, how to communicate with the local people because they weren't used to these kind of films. And reliving, and reliving in front of them. The biggest concern was that we were going to bring back the Khmer Rouge and we were going to re-traumatize people. That was the biggest concern for you or for them or who was saying that? For me, the producers, mm-hmm. for all of us, we just felt like this is not something that is talked about a lot and now and these people are not used to film. So when you suddenly have a mass of Khmer Rouge soldiers and tanks coming over that bridge, what is that going to do and how do we get everybody ready for that? How do we make it cathartic and not traumatic? Mm-hmm. And so there was just a lot of communication, a lot of community meetings, a lot of meetings with the monks, a lot of blessings, a lot of prayer, a lot of stopping to talk, a therapist on set every day. We, we really kind of did it like an exor- a therapeutic communal exercise. And Luang was on set all the time. And Luang was on set. How did she feel about, you know, obviously she'd written about it, so she'd mm-hmm. relived it in that way. Well, she said something beautiful. She said during the war, everybody was alone. Everybody felt alone and scared. And this was everybody together. And everybody over 40 remembers the war. So everybody on set was either a child of somebody or they themselves, this was their life. Mm-hmm. So just everybody was holding each other. When there's an emotional scene, you'd, you'd look around and you'd see everybody holding each other, crying, talking, praying. It was such a collective, it was such a sharing that I think I think it did do something quite special. And I was very humbled to just be a part of it and be able to, to witness it. With the last two or three minutes, I hope we can just do something where we often just like the first thing that kind of comes to your mind, if that's all right. This movie was unveiled at Telluride. That's where I I was lucky enough to see it. Got a huge response there, everywhere else since. Then to have it chosen by Cambodia to be Cambodia's entry for the foreign language Oscar race. What what does that mean? Oh, well, that means so much to me because it means that the country, as I said, this country, it's been a very, very long time, 40 years after the war, to be able to acknowledge this part of the history and to have something where people could come together and agree and discuss. And so for the for the country to put this forward and, and agree and come together and say that this represents a part of their history is an acknowledgement and is a, such a step forward for the country just on what it actually symbolizes. For me personally, I remember the day that I was nervous asking Luang what she would feel if I adopted a child from Cambodia because I didn't know if Cambodian people would be offended if I was a mother to a Cambodian child. So for me to be allowed to be a part of another country and then for that country to accept me as their own and be able to represent them is the greatest honor. Last I heard you do something that's unusual in Hollywood. You don't have a Manager, an agent, or a publicist? What's that about? I have an agent. You do? Okay. Publicists, I never really got along with. I've had to have them for emergencies, and it's never worked out well. <laughs> so it just, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. Yeah. I, I really don't know. <laughs> All four films you've done have been sort of darker subject matter, three of them about war. Is that just solely attributable to this, that, that your interest with, you know, the, the UN-type humanitarian activity has brought you into that world as often as it has, or, or you've gone into that world, or, or like what's, if you were to psychoanalyze why those are the movies that you've chosen to direct, what's that about? Well, I think any film really is a study of human nature, human behavior, and obviously in wartime, we, we come to the extremes of man's inhumanity 
to man and and our deepest humanity. So it, it does these extremes that I think maybe I'm I'm interested in. And, but every film, in a way, they're all war, but they're different kind of stages of. It's almost like I'm trying to understand how we prevent war, how we get through war, how we survive a war. You know, in Blood and Honey, it was, it was this like collapse under something and, and how it divides and then unbroken, it kind of rose up. And then for first they killed, it was so much the love of the family and how you actually can't take away the thing that can actually be the most beautiful thing that can come through something so horrific and to see it really through a child. So they all have different things. Somebody said to me once, which I think, which I'll t- tell you, I probably shouldn't point this out. Somebody <laughs> tells you like, here's the thing you do as a director all the time, don't tell anybody, but I'll tell you. All right. Somebody said to me, why is it in every one of your films, there's always a scene between two people and one person drops to their knees and the other person's left standing. Isn't that strange? And it never dawned on me. There's no re- and it's reason. In every single one of my films, almost like it's almost like embarrassing how <laughs> how it's like you could almost put them all next to each other in the strange. But but I wonder if there's something to that that idea of something I've always been trying to find in life, like when you're up against something and you, you have to find what you stand for and then you have to fight for it and then you have to kind of you, you know your your will and your drive and your and and will you stay standing or will you will you fall mm-hmm. or will you accept that you're responsible and then will somebody step forward so something about that i i am very drawn to and all four have different cinematographers right and all four have different cinematographers yeah That's all unusual. amazing yeah all amazing men why should refugees and friends of refugees like yourself not despair at the trump administration's very unwelcoming yeah. attitudes towards refugees i've been working on these issues for 16 years and mm-hmm. I hope to work on them until my last day and I hope my children work on these issues. You know, these things are bigger than all of us and me personally, I, I believe in, you know, things things evolve. I think as we have to hope that even in our darkest times that if we look back in history, we've hit very, very dark times and we've come come out stronger mm-hmm. and we we have to believe that that is what our goal must be and sometimes things can crystallize something and then you understand even clearer what you need to fight for and why and what you need to hold on to and why. And so I think that can be and maybe must be the the way people have to look at dark times. And then the last thing is just for, for you, what these next few years, you have any specific goals or challenges for yourself, anything like what do you think these next few years hold for you? Teenagers. Teenagers. Or, or <laughs> directing, though? Or will you also act? Or are you done with acting? Or what's No, the- I'd, love to, I'd love to do a little bit more. I think I'll enjoy acting more than I did before now that I'm older and I come at it differently. I would love to direct again. But very honestly, I've spent the last year and a half doing nothing but really just being a mom. Mm-hmm. And it's the most important thing for me to do. So I, I'll see what projects come, but... But I'll see how much I I need to balance that with my my kids right now. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. 
Until next time, thanks for joining us.